Well, good day, everyone. Lovely to see you this morning. Um, I want to start uh, by speaking to you this morning about your goals, uh, goals for life, your dreams, your desires for the future. But in order to do so, I want to go backwards. I want to start from the very beginning. Let me ask you, when you were a child, what is it that you wanted to do when you grew up? Do you remember when you were a kid? What was your big hope and aspiration? Now, what I want you to do is I want you to turn to the person next to you and I want you to tell them, okay? And if you're a visitor, I'm not even sorry about it. I'm glad. You get to know people a little bit better. 30 seconds, have a chat. What do you want to do when you're a kid? Now, I'll get my thoughts together here. Go for it. Anyone? No one wanted to be a preacher? No? I didn't. And yet here I am. No, no, listen, let me tell you about myself. I, I actually, when I, when I was a kid, I was desperate above all things to be a pirate. And I can prove it to you. Um, now, that's a real moustache. By the way, I'm, I'm part Italian, and um, it's my wife's Italian, but either way, uh, that's, that's, a, that's me at the age of five. Um, I was obsessed with pirates. Anything to do with pirates, I just, I was, you know, I thought there was nothing better than sailing the seven seas and, you know, just being involved. I always, I was just the kind of kid, I always went for the baddies in movies. Anyone else? Like, I watched The Goonies. Did anyone see The Goonies? And you know that, that character? I was like, yes! Um, but I always had a, you know, I always, piracy, there was something about it that appealed to me. <sighs> no, no, you can take it off, it's fine. But something, something happened to me as I grew up. Do you know what it was? I realised that as a career option, piracy is a hard business to get into. Okay? It's a difficult industry to break into. It's, it's out there, you can try it, but the pay and conditions, not great. Um, travel, ooh, pretty dicey. Okay, it's not too, it's not that easy. So alternatively, I just, I joined the army instead, and that was a much easier option. You might say, why didn't I join the navy instead of joining the, na- the army? But the navy is, of course, the opposite of pirates. I didn't want to be involved, and I couldn't join the navy because I'm normal, and uh, that wouldn't have worked uh, for me to do that whatsoever. No, I had to come up, uh, I had to come to terms with reality, uh, and reality dictated that as a mature adult, I really. I couldn't be a pirate. It wouldn't take me where I wanted to go. It wouldn't lead me anywhere good. Now, think about right now. Think about today. And what I want you to do is, whether you're 18 or 98, however old you are, I want you to think about the future. Think about the rest of the years that you have in this life. What do you want to do now you've grown up for the rest of your life? On your deathbed, what is it that you want to have achieved? And and is it actually something that's taking you somewhere that you want to go. You know, one of the challenges, the relentlessly contemporary, relentlessly, endlessly um, contemporary challenges of being a Christian is that we live in the world, not, but we're not of the world. You know that expression. We, are, we live in the world. Um, we are you know, surrounded by the world. We bring the world home with us in our pockets. The influence of the world is continually around us. We are immersed in it. And yet we're called to be outside of it. And yet it's very, very simple, very, very straightforward and easy and, and common um, for us to be deeply influenced by the world that we're part of. And we see this um, particularly in the world of goals and dreams and desires and the type of life that we want to live. It's very uh, common for us to, to live in a society like ours where middle-class Australian aspirations circle around status and property and a spouse, a house, a car, the kids, the holidays, um, and mimic those for ourselves. We end up believing, well, those are Christian values, Christian goals, Christian dreams and desires. 
And all we're doing is mimicking the, the goals of the society around us and, and putting a, a sort of a Christian hat on it and saying, well, there, there we go. I'm, this is what God wants for me. When the end result is really... Well, none of us as Christians would go, well, I, I don't want to be a Christian or anything. I just want this and that. But the end result of this, of course, is that the goal itself can be the main meal and your Christianity can be like a, a bit of salt garnish just on the top. You know, just a slight thing that doesn't influence one way or the other where you're heading. The question that we need to answer as Christian people, and I want to say if you're not a Christian here today, it's also a question that's deeply relevant for you as you, as you look in on Christian things. The question we need to answer is, what are God's goals for us? What is it that God wants in our lives? Where does God plan to take us? And what will our lives look like? if we live according to the goals that he has for us? How would our lives have to change if we live according to the lives, uh, live our lives according to the goals that God has? Well, that's the question that is answered for us in this incredible passage in 2 Corinthians that we're looking at uh, this morning. If you have a Bible, please keep it open uh, to chapter 12. Um, I want to give you a bit of an overview of the context here as it is crucial to grab. If, if you've come in midway through the series or if you've zoned out or whatever it is, let me just give you a brief overview of where we're at um, however, if what I'm about to say makes no sense, don't sweat it too much. It will become clear as we go. Uh, we are entering into, in chapter 12, uh, the, the, sort of the, the high point, uh, the climax of an argument that Paul, the writer of Corinthians, has been making to the Corinthian church all about these false teachers who have infiltrated within their church. These are people who have been boasting these false teachers have come in and they've boasted about a whole range of things. And Paul has, has countered that by, by boasting back at them. He hates to boast and yet that's what he's decided to do. He's boasted about himself, about his own credentials to counter theirs, about his own experiences, although in a way that none of us have ever done before. Chapter 11, he boasts about his own weaknesses. But now here in chapter 12, what we see is Paul continuing that argument by boasting about his spiritual experiences. False teachers have infiltrated the Corinthian church, boasting about their deep spiritual insights, their deep spiritual experiences and miraculous powers. So Paul chooses to boast about the ones that he had received, about what God had gifted him, both good and bad. And what I want to do is I want to show you, particularly from the first half of the Bible reading we have, um, the good and the bad gifts that Paul's been given before spending some time thinking about um, what that looks like in our lives. Just before I do that, Kelvin, sorry, could you get me a glass of water or would that be okay? Sorry, I'm just going to... Thank you. So come with me, chapter 12, uh, and, and I want to show you, first of all, the good gift that God has given Paul, verse 2 to 4. Let me read this out for you again uh, and follow along with your Bibles. This is what Paul writes. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Now, it appears that Paul, uh, who is writing this, is having some sort of personality crisis, isn't he? It's a very strange way to speak. Um, but let me just um, sort of clarify exactly what's going on here. Paul is speaking about himself in the third person. Paul is telling us about a time 14 years earlier where God 
took him up to heaven, whether in the flesh or whether as a vision. We're not sure, thanks, brother. We're not quite sure what's happened. However, he is taken up to the very presence of God. However, he's mentioning it here, but even though he is mentioning it, he's very sheepish about doing so. He's very reluctant to do so. And we know that, and that's, that's why he's speaking about it in the third person. Give me one second. Now, why is Paul so reluctant? Have a look at the passage. We're given three reasons. First of all, verse 4, he has been forbidden by God to speak about it. Now, he's not forbidden to speak about the fact that he had the vision, that he had the, the interaction with God, but he is forbidden to speak about what God told him. So he's not breaking any commandment by doing so. The vision wasn't private, but the content of it was, so he's reluctant to speak about it. Secondly, Now, this is important for every single one of us to grasp. Despite the fact that Paul had this incredible revelation from God, it impacts his gospel ministry in zero way. It does not in any way give him extra qualifications as a gospel minister. It does not in any way shape his message. So he doesn't mention it. And you see, that's in direct contrast to these Corinthian False teachers who are bragging about the way that God has spoken to them and revealed themselves to him, saying, listen listen to us, listen to us because God has given me this particular message. Paul doesn't even mention it. He's been up to heaven, doesn't even mention it. And I want to say that's relevant for every single one of us because you will see around the place, not as common today perhaps, but still present within Christianity, outside of Christianity, people who claim special authority from God, special anointing, double portions, quadruple portions of this, that, the other, Um, special um, insights to God because God has spoken to them, revealed themselves to him, to which we say from reading the Bible, nonsense, absolute nonsense. Not only am I very dubious it happened in the first place, although it might, it does not give anyone extra qualifications as a gospel minister. It does not mean you should listen to them more. Why? Because the qualifications for preaching the gospel The qualifications of being a pastor and a minister, well, they're outlined for us clearly here, are to point people towards Jesus. They're not to point people towards yourself. Yes, there are parts of character and competence that are talked about elsewhere, but be very cautious of anyone saying, you should listen to me because God has revealed himself in a particular way. Uh, It's not what the Bible says. It's not what Paul says. However, there is a third reason he's reluctant that I want you to take note of. Paul is reluctant to speak about this vision he has because he's afraid of boasting. It's funny, isn't it? It's all this talk about boasting. Paul is reluctant to speak about this incredible insight from God because he is afraid of, he's been warned against, conceit, arrogance, being puffed up. How do we know that? Well, that's the second thing I want to point out to you. You see, as well as the good gift that Paul has been given... We're told he's given something else. Verse 7, listen to this, listen to what Paul has given. After he returned from heaven, in order to keep me from being conceited, he writes, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Paul is given, he says, a thorn in the flesh. Now, Let's just press pause and work out what he's talking about here. What, what does he mean? Well, firstly, it's a metaphor. It's not a literal thorn. Okay? It's a metaphor um, uh, that, that, that is talking about a circumstance or a situation in his life that was a constant, ever-pressing burden upon him. 
Something that drained him emotionally, drained him, a reminder of the frailty of his flesh. He was given some circumstance, some situation in life, which was constantly there to torment him, to agonize him, to remind him of his frailty. Now, what is the thorn he's given? Well, you know as much as I do. We don't know. The theologians, the the commentators, they've got around 70 different options uh, for us to have a look at. No one can agree. But I think there's a very clear reason we're not told why it is. I think it's a brilliant thing we're not told. If we're told what it was, if we're told, well, I have a thorn in my flesh and it's, mm, it means any one of us who don't have that thing, who don't experience that thing, can go, well, that's got nothing to do with me. And yet here, all of us can relate to Paul, those of us in Christ. It doesn't narrow everything down to his experience because many of us, dear friends, listen, Many of us have thorns. Many of us walk around, sit where you sit with constant reminders of your weakness, of our frailty. It might be physical, mental, emotional, relational. The dark battle with depression and anxiety that raises its head again and again. The desperate Diagnosis from the doctor which terrifies and destroys. The heartbreak of estrangement from children, of parents estranged from children. The agony of a loveless marriage. The feelings of inadequacy and guilt of divorce. Or perhaps the longing and praying for a spouse or a child consumed with feelings of emptiness and loneliness. The daily pain which is all so consuming, a thorn in the flesh. We know what this isn't. It's not a sin. It's not a reoccurring sin. But a thorn in the flesh, something that just agonizes. Now, we don't know what this is for Paul, but what I want you to notice is two things. Firstly, we're told it's an ever-present burden that gives him agony. But secondly, there's a twist to what we're reading. You see, as bad as it is that Paul has this thorn in his flesh that is a constant sense of agony, there's something deeply, deeply surprising that we learn about it in verse 7. Who is it who is responsible for the suffering that Paul endures? Well, the surface level answer we have here is Satan. You see it here. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. We see that Satan is responsible for the suffering that Paul endures. But look at it again and read it. Just read it slowly. In order to keep me from being conceited. Now, who is it who wishes Paul to be conceited? Satan. Who wishes Paul not to be conceited? God. And we know that it's God, because in the very next verse, verse 8, have a look, Paul pleads with the Lord, he's talking to Jesus there, he pleads with Jesus to take this burden off him. Now, please don't miss this part. What are we reading? What are we hearing? What are we understanding? This terrible agony, pain, burden, torment that Paul is living with, going through, that is constantly there, is not from Satan. It's permitted to be with him from God. God could prevent it, 
but he's chosen not to. Now, that's a very difficult thing for us to understand, isn't it? And it's very difficult because it actually clashes, clashes deeply with um, a surface-level version of Christianity, which is very, very popular and common uh, amongst not just the world, but even uh, within churches. And, and I, I, I've no doubt you're probably familiar with it. The surface-level version of the world that, that a kind of shallow Christianity says as well, um, there's God, good, yes. Evil, Satan, <laughs> bad. And there's, you know, like a constant battle at, at war between good God and bad Satan. Kind of like the Second World War, you know. You've got the, you know, the goodies, the allies, the baddies, the Nazis, you know, and they're going at each other and, and there's a tussle. And every time something bad happens, it's Satan. He's just got through and he's popped something through, you know. God's like, no, not again. But it's okay because God, he's got a plan. And hopefully it's going to work. That is by far and away the most common view Outside of the church, people have of Christianity, the view of God and Satan. But also it's one that many of us share. Many of us have sort of inherited and picked up along the way. But my dear friends, the Bible says the exact opposite to that. That is not a picture of reality. The reality of the Bible, the reality of life that God himself gives us is what? Who is it that's in control of all things? God is in control. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. He rules and reigns over all things. The feast, but also the famine. The birth, but also the death. The salvation, yes, but also the suffering. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means there's a challenge, a question, a paradox almost at play there for us that we need to deal with. If God could prevent suffering but chooses not to, what does it mean? Well, there's only one possible meaning. Why would God permit suffering and agony when he could stop it? If God permits what he could forbid, then it means he must have a purpose in allowing it. A purpose that is more important to him than whatever the cost if God allows horrible pain and suffering to take place when he could stop it, which he can, it must mean he has a purpose in place, a purpose which to him means more than the pain, the suffering, the agony. Do you get that? Now the question is, the the million, billion dollar question is, what is it? What is it that matters more to God than your pain and your suffering and your agony and your torment? Well, the second half of the passage that we're reading this morning points us to two individual answers to that question. Two purposes of God's, two goals, if you like, that God reveals to us, both individually different from one another, but also deeply entwined and connected. And so what I want to do is I want to show you both of these individual goals that God has, both of these purposes God reveals to us in his holy word, and also then step back and show you how they're connected. But I must warn you before we do so uh, that what we're about to read is deeply confrontational. It's, it's astonishingly difficult for us to hear. In fact, one of the words used in here as Paul talks about it is knuckles in the original language. It's like knuckles in the face. And yet we have to deal with the truth that God gives us. So let me show you the first one of these purposes. The first one, verse 7. Have a look at what's said. 
Why does God allow pain and suffering when he could stop it? Verse 7, therefore, Paul writes, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Paul has given his thorn to stop him being conceited. And the word conceited means arrogant or, or puffed up or full of himself. Now, why would Paul be arrogant and puffed up? Because he'd seen the visions that he'd seen. He'd been in the very presence of God. There's no indication that Paul himself dealt with, um, uh, struggled with arrogance more than anyone else. Nothing like that. There's no indication that Paul was particularly susceptible to this. But rather that if any of us were taken up into the very presence of God, would not we be tempted to tell anyone and everyone about it? Would we be tempted to think that we were somehow special, somehow more loved than everyone else? So what is God's purpose in the pain? What is it that God desires for Paul? The opposite of conceit, which is humility. Humility is why God allows pain in your life. Now, humility is a, is a word that needs definition. In our broader context of Australia, um, we really like the term, don't we? We hate arrogance. The tall poppy syndrome. I love the tall poppy syndrome. People attack it like it's a bear. I think it's amazing. Anyone gets too big, whack, we bing them down. I love it. I think it's brilliant. Very Christian trait. One day I will be successful and then I won't like it. But till then, I like it. Now, what we mean by humility is don't think too much of yourself. Don't be puffed up. Don't be proud. The word itself, humility, believe it or not, it actually ties in with the original language of Greek, ties in with the word for earth, the ground. You know the term? So you're being, if someone is down to earth, isn't that fascinating? Down to earth. Or sometimes they're brought down to earth, which is the same word humiliated. So saying this sort of sister words. All means being brought down to earth. What we mean generally in the wider context of Australia outside of the church, when we use the word humble, is to see yourself clearly in comparison with other people. You don't think you're better than you are. You see yourself accurately. It's something that we admire. But God does not just admire humility. He demands it. It is the number one Christian trait. The Bible makes it clear. The number one virtue that God desires for you in your character is humility. Why? Because to God, humility is more than just viewing yourself accurately in comparison to other people. There's more to humility than just not being conceited. So much more that God will permit pain, suffering, agony, even messengers of Satan to come into your life to bring it. So what does God mean when he uses the word humble and humility? Well, the reading we had from Proverbs has a beautiful definition. I'll just chuck it on the screen for you. Verse 4, Proverbs 22. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honour and life. Now, just have a look at that there. The fear of the Lord is an expression that means the understanding of God and all of his might and power and, and glory. To, to have the fear of the, of the Lord means to, to grasp hold of God's holiness, purity and perfection. So what is humility according to God? It is not seeing yourself in comparison to one another. It's like two men with broken legs comparing castes. So my caste is better than your caste. Well done. Humility is the result of seeing yourself in comparison to God, in the light of God's holiness, 
and realise in the deep, dark reality that you and I are not as good as we think we are. Pretending otherwise is one of the deep causes of sinfulness. I've got a friend, a mate, who years and years ago went to a party uh, which had a huge group of people that he didn't know near a university campus. He lived near a uni. Um, and he struck a, a conversation with, with a stranger and they began chatting back and forth. Now, my friend had just read a book on the Russian Revolution um, of the early part of the 20th century. He'd just read this book about it. Uh, and so they had nothing to talk about. And so he began speaking about this thing. Oh, this happened and that happened. And, and he waxed lyrical for 15 minutes. And then they did this and then they did that. And then you've got Trotsky and blah, 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 and then Lenin and blah, 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 blah. On and on and on he spoke. And the man just listened intently. After a while, my friend ran out of steam and he said, oh, so, so what do you do? And he goes, oh, well, I'm a lecturer here at the university. Oh, what are you lecturing? History. Modern or ancient? Modern. In fact, I actually did my thesis on the Russian Revolution. <laughs> In an instant, what did my friend realise? Oh, I might be an expert compared to a bloke down at the, the bolo or the pub. But in comparison to the expert, who am I? Humility is seeing yourself accurately. It's stopping pretending that you are somehow on equal footing with God. It's to understand spiritually that you are not nearly good enough. You're not a good person. You're not just caught up with bad things and bad habits. You're not addicted to this or in painful addiction to that. Now, there's nothing, I'm not saying addiction doesn't matter or isn't real. But I'm saying the chief cause of all of our pain is not addiction and it's not habits and it's not other people. It's me. I'm the problem. You're the problem. So how does that lead Paul to humility? How does seeing himself lightly and rightly do that? Well, there's two ways we're told. Firstly, it's a constant reminder of his humanity. There's a constant reminder, this thorn somehow reminder that he is a frail, broken human. But also, verse 8 Look at this, very, very important. Where does the understanding of God's power and awe, the fear of the Lord, where does it take Paul? Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. He went to the Lord. He fell on his knees before the Lord. The Lord allowed trouble and agony into Paul's life to drive Paul to himself. Have you ever been there? And it's all stripped away. Have you ever been there, desperate? And you understand in an instant, I'm not in control. I don't control this. God, God, have you been there? Strung out, desperate. Paul cries out to the Lord. The Lord The Lord desires that in us. Weakness. Weakness. A lack of independence and understanding of the desperate need for dependence. But there is a second reason that I want you to notice. Number one, humility. God allows suffering and pain for humility. But the second reason, and this is the one that is knuckles. Listen to the response that the Lord Jesus himself, our Lord, gives to Paul, his great servant, when Paul comes to him for relief. Verse 8. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus says, no, Paul, I want you weak. Why? Because it is in weakness that Jesus' power is made perfect. Then he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. When Paul does boast of his weakness, whose power rests on him? Christ's. Then in verse 10, one of the most remarkable statements, I think, in all of the Bible. Listen to what Paul says. That is why... For Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, not that I put up with my weaknesses because um, it makes me love God. He doesn't say, I'm content with my weakness because it makes me humble before God. He says he delights in weakness. He He rejoices in it. Why? Verse 10. For Christ's sake. Paul is humbled by his thorn that brings him to God. His weakness leads him to understand the only power that's worth a darn thing in this life is the power we have in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. But that is not primarily what I want you to notice. Why did it occur? For Paul's sake? For Paul's good? For Paul's humility? Not primarily. But for Christ's glory. For the sake of Christ Jesus. This is so hard for us to grasp, so difficult for us to deal with, so painful for us to actually put into our minds. It flies into the face of instinctively what we think about God. But hear this clearly. To God in heaven, the most important thing about your life is not you. To God, the most important thing about all life is not us. The most important thing is the glory and honour of Jesus. God's priority in life is Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, look it up later. God outlines his purpose as the gathering together of all things unto the lordship, the rule, the reign of Jesus. God does not exist to make us feel special. He's not up there desperately pining away saying, will they notice me? Have they noticed me? Are they talking about me? God's existence is not about you, and it's not about me, it's about him. And so God's design in suffering, in torment, in pain is what? Is that Jesus' power is on display through your weakness. Do you see that? That Jesus' power, the power you have to endure and persevere, the power you have in your desperation to cry out to God, displays Christ's power. Not yours. And once you see this, my friends, you see that this is the theme of 2 Corinthians running its way throughout. There's a bunch of passages I could go to, but chapter 4, I'll put it on the screen for us quickly. It's a famous passage, jars of clay, talking about yourself. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Listen. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be what? Revealed in our body. 
So what do we have? What do you make of that? Two purposes outlined for us. Number one, God allows suffering, pain, torment, agony into your life, the ever-present thorn, to humble you so you would come to him. Strip yourself of your strength, which is no strength at all, and in weakness find the one true strength. Number two, God's priority and purpose in all things is the glory of Christ. But if that's all we have, we have a problem, don't we? Because if that's all we have, what we have is a situation where God comes off looking like a narcissistic parent who sabotages their children's life in order to keep them close to them. Did anyone see the Netflix series Beef? Did anyone see that? Literally the most popular series in Netflix. Please don't watch it. It was terrible. However, there's a scene in this series, it came out this year, where uh, it's about a, a man, and it's about a whole bunch of things, but one of the characters is a man and his brother, two main characters. And the, the main character, the, the elder brother, desperately loves, wants, needs the attention of the younger brother. So when it comes time for the younger brother to graduate high school and go off to college, the elder brother steals the younger brother's um, college applications without telling him, says, I'll post them for you, and throws them out. So the younger brother can't go to college and has to stay. He sabotages his younger brother's success so that he can keep close to him. Is that what we have here? No. There is something connecting these two purposes, something glorious and life-transforming. We see a hint of it there in verse 9. What is the answer Jesus gives Paul? But he said to me, my Grace is sufficient for you. What is the connection between your humility and Christ's glory? Grace. Grace is my favorite word. The word grace means God's undeserved kindness for sinners. More, more. God's overflowing, passionate love for people who do not deserve it. And grace connects those two concepts. Humility, glory, together in an unshakable, unbreakable way. Why? How? Because Jesus died. On the cross, Jesus was humiliated. He humbled himself. He was stripped naked, beaten and hung up on a cross. As he lay dying, he was mocked and derided, spat upon and abused, humiliated. On the cross, Jesus' death looked like weakness. It looked shameful and foolish. And yet, how does Jesus refer to his own death? Not as shame, but as glory. He calls his own death his glorification. On the cross, Jesus dies revealing the glory of God. And yet simultaneously on the cross, Jesus dies so that sinners, broken people, rebels, rejects, people like you and I can be forgiven. He died to pay the penalty that we deserve. He died to show you grace. God's way of getting glory from you is by giving grace to you. The way that God's glory is most stunningly on display in this universe is his gracious, merciful, patient, loving, forgiving of sinners. 
They're not separate. They're entwined. That's what makes him glorious, his grace. And what that means is that there is nothing taking place in your life right now. No agony, no torment, no, no misery that is not being used by him and by God to his glory and your good. You can trust it because God is chiefly concerned with his glory. And his glory is most on display in showing you grace. And so his grace is not a one-off gift. It's not a, it's not a spare tire in the back of your car. It's a car key. You use it continually. It's sufficient for you. It means whatever you're doing, whatever you're facing, you're never alone. God is with you and he's not about to leave. And I want to suggest to you that understanding that, truly grasping hold of that, changes everything. God is constantly at work. Constantly at work in your life. Constantly at work in your struggles and your pain. Let me finish this morning by um, speaking to two separate groups here today. Firstly, for you, if you are suffering. If you're amongst us this morning and you're suffering, as I know that many of you are, in, in profoundly powerful and personal ways, um, today, like every day, is a day of anguish. And maybe not ever present, but it's always there, bubbling beneath the surface. In the context of your suffering and pain, God's word gives us great comfort today, and I'm desperate for you to get it. Jesus says to you that his grace is sufficient for you. What that means is that there is no promise that your suffering will cease. It's not wrong for us to pray for reconciliation, for, for, for the end of disease and death, for, for a, a husband or a wife, for children. There's nothing wrong in praying for those things, but there's no promise that your suffering will cease. However, no matter what you're suffering, no matter what you're going through, there is the endless promise for us to cling on to that God is in control. God is in the thick of it. And he will sustain you through it. There is no circumstance that he will not give you the strength to endure. More than that. He will grow you through it. Your weakness and pain is not a sign of God's absence, but of God's work in you to grow you and shape you. God is in the middle of all of your pain and all of your suffering. He is here. He is there working for your good in the diagnosis, in the destroyed relationship, in the the desired dreams that haven't come to fruition, in all of it. God is in the middle of it. He is there. He is bringing you, continually working in you, to make you like Jesus. And secondly, for you here today, if you are a Christian, let me ask you, what do you want to be when you've grown up? What do you think God wants you to be? What does God most want for your life? Let me tell you what he doesn't want. What matters most to God in your life is not your family. It's not your friends. It's not your house, your spouse, your car, your retirement plans, your travel plans. It's that you humble yourself before him. That you embrace a life that's focused on Christ, not on self. That our lives don't circle around the goals and dreams of the world, but they circle around Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. Our only hope is God. Our only hope is God. He is worth selling everything we have for. He is worth losing everything we have to follow. He died to make that possible. So we can trust him. 
He brings strength out of weakness. His grace is always sufficient. Let me finish by praying. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus in showing us grace through what Jesus has done for us on the cross, but also for glorifying your Son so we may see his glory. We thank you that in these purposes, your glory and your grace, our humility, that you bring us true strength. Not that we on our own have anything about us to boast in, but rather that in Christ we are forgiven. We've been shown grace. Help us to cling to our true identity, not identifying ourselves with the things of this world, but rather by defining who we are by Jesus Christ crucified and risen as our King. Help us echo with Paul those great words that when we are weak, then we are strong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.